Welcome to the OC24 podcast, where we've taken some of the best talks and discussions from this year's 24-hour conference on global organised crime, which showcases some of the most interesting research into organised crime around the world. This episode is called Assistance to Victims of Trafficking in Persons. Hello, good afternoon and good, good evening and good morning, everyone in this uh, panel. Uh, we're just giving some time for uh, people to join us. Uh, a couple of minutes, people, uh, they are starting to, to join in this webinar. So um, my name is Mauricio Bastien, and I would like to, to welcome you to this uh, session of the uh, 24 Hours uh, Organized Crime Conference organized by the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. And uh, also I would like to, to thank the Secretariat and uh, special uh, thanks to, to Iris for uh, setting up all this um, uh, webinar. So uh, many thanks. Um, I am pleased uh, to, to be joined um, today uh, by uh, Raquel Caspi, uh, uh, Livia Wagner and uh, Mayra Hernandez who are going to join me today in this uh, event. So uh, the, the structure of this uh, panel is uh, we're, we're going to have uh, three main um, uh, spaces of, of uh, discussions. Uh, the first one will be uh, Raquel presenting uh, her book. Then the second one um, will be um, a, a panel, a discussion panel uh, between uh, Lydia and Myra about uh, the importance of uh, human trafficking and different uh, approaches. And uh, then the third one will be uh, some uh, closing uh, remarks. So uh, to begin, I would like to, to welcome uh, Raquel Caspi Miller, who is the author of uh, La Estrella de Luna, uh, Luna's uh, Star, uh, <clears throat> a book about uh, a real story, uh, a novel based on a real story about uh, human trafficking uh, in Mexico and uh, that describes uh, the, the situation of this uh, crime. So um, before uh, giving the word to, to Raquel, I would like to, to introduce her. Uh, she holds a BA in special education and has practiced as a therapist uh, for children for more than 10 years. And uh, she has specialized in neuro-linguistic uh, programming, clinical psychology, and psychotopathology. She also has a training in uh, neuroscience education, a master's in transpersonal psychology, and is currently studying her PhD in human development. So uh, welcome, Raquel, and uh, we are happy to, and, uh, to, to hear uh, your comments uh, about the book and how this uh, book uh, came into life. Thank you very much, Mauricio. Um, as Maus just said, my name is Raquel Caspi. I was born and raised in Mexico City and I have lived here my entire life. I am currently um, a week away from finishing my PhD in human development. So what I have been working on and my investigation has to do with um, victims of human trafficking, human trafficking survivors. And um, I am currently helping five human trafficking survivors, five women in therapy, with the objective of helping them transform their pain and their experiences into power. And today I will be talking to you 
all a little bit about Luna. Luna is a young Mexican woman who is a survivor of human trafficking. And she began her therapeutic process with me at the beginning of 2021. This has been by far, and I have to reiterate, by far the most challenging case I have seen, I have experienced in my almost 20 years of working as a therapist. And one would think that it's because of her experience as a victim, but in reality, tragedy aside, um, it has to do with a lot more than that. On our first session, she told me she didn't trust women. She didn't believe in therapy or psychology and that she had been her own personal psychologist for 10 years. And I thought I understood, but I really seriously did not. When she was 14 years old, she went to an annual fair um, in her town in the state of Mexico with her cousin, Flor. And after having a wonderful experience, a great afternoon at this time, as I mentioned, she was 14 years old. She went on the rides. She um, had fun with her friends. And when it was time to go home, they went to um, a, a street, a place where they would usually get rides home. This is a small town. So of course they were used to doing this. They had done this before. And um, this was something usual for them. And although it was taking a little bit longer than usual, they, they knew that when any event was going on, things were a little bit slower. So they noticed several trailers passing by, which was also normal. And when they saw one that started slowing down, they thought nothing of it since, I mean, this was usual, trailers pass all the time. And in a matter of seconds, they were drugged and put into the back of this trailer. When they woke up, they were well on their way to another state, the state of Puebla, which Luna noticed as she peeked through some rails. They were each sold to a woman and her partner for $100. After spending four days in a dark room with no food and only access to dirty water, they were separated. That was her introduction to human trafficking to sex, sexual exploitation, into a living nightmare. The days that followed were all the same. There were seven girls that had been abducted and sexually exploited, and they would be separated into small groups, two or three girls, and taken to local bars where they would work for 21 hours. Their work consisted of sexual exploitation and forced labor. They were in charge of cleaning the bar, working from dusk till dawn, and they were only allowed three hours of sleep per night. Their two meals, because they were only allowed two meals per day, consisted in cup noodles, chips, and sometimes crackers. And to drink, they only had dirty water. In these bars, the girls were forced to dance topless and cater to anything they were asked to do by the clients. This included any type of sexual activity, as well as any type of abuse, physical abuse. The first time that Luna escaped, she left one of the bars when no one was watching. This was during the day and she ran until she, find, she, she was able to find two police officers. Out of breath and ter terrified, she told them her story. They asked her to get in the back of the car and told her they would take her home. What happened next is truly unbelievable because they took her directly back to the pimp, the woman who had ruined 
her life and who had bought her for $100. After that, between the drugs, the abuse, the devastation, Luna felt as if she was already dead. Days and weeks went by, same thing every day, until it was time to rest. The enslaved girls, because there's no other way to put this, were given two days off in between bars where they had been working for two weeks straight. Their days off consisted of washing their clothes, their shoes, and helping with house chores. They were still only allowed two meals a day and three to four hours of sleep. On this occasion, Estrella, who was Luna's friend, stole a gallon of water that was in the kitchen. I'm gonna tell you a little bit about Estrella. Estrella was sold to this woman, to this pimp, when she was 12 years old. She was exchanged for a kilogram of cocaine, a kilogram of marijuana, and a bottle of tequila. So since the age of 12, Estrella had been exploited, enslaved in this group of people, within this group of people. So Estrella and Luna became friends. And although Estrella was a bit older, a couple of years, somehow they, they got into a beautiful relationship where Luna explains that she felt Estrella was like her big sister who would take care of her and who, when she wouldn't um, get the amount of money that she needed per night, which was $1,000, Estrella would help. So going back to the story, Estrella stole a gallon of water and took it into the room that all the girls shared and hid it with the idea to share it when it was time to go to sleep, when nobody would know. So when they were all together, she took out the gallon of water and she shared it and they were all excited. They were happy. They, they had clean water to drink. So after this gift, they all went to sleep. What happened next changed everybody's life. The pimp went into the room. She was drunk and drugged and she was screaming. She knew someone had stolen the gallon of water. And after screams and threats, Estrella confessed, and then she was beaten to death in front of all of her friends. When Luna told me this part of her story, after 10 years, she was inconsolable. She had lost the only person within this nightmare that gave her any hope. Weeks went by and she tried to kill herself unsuccessfully several times. Um, as I mentioned, the quota she had to meet, which was $1,000 per night, was now the last thing on her mind. She had lost her will to live and honestly did not want to buy another day because that's what this was to her. She had to make this money to live another day. Because of this, because of not reaching the amount of money that she had to every night, she was punished. And she was thrown into a room with no food, no water, and she was just left there alone. But this room was where she was able to escape for the second time. This is a wonderful story because this was a success. And it was seriously, the, the difference was the amount of people, strangers primarily, who helped her. She ran 
obviously avoiding the main streets, avoiding police cars, and found a van with two young women who were going somewhere else and asked them, begged them, was crying for a ride. And they did, they gave her a ride 20 minutes away from there. But that is where everything began to change. She went through two days of being helped, fed, um, given clothes to by strangers, and she was finally able to get home. When she got there, she went to her house. She was with her family, and together with the authorities, they were able to go back and rescue the rest of the girls, including her cousin. And the people responsible for everything were put behind bars, which is amazing, right? This is what one would think. But to this day, after 10 years, these people still have not been sentenced. Luna did not receive any help from the government, not medical, psychological, economic, or otherwise. She was abandoned by the system. I would love to tell you that it was uphill from here, but it wasn't. She was re-victimized by everyone in the town. Um, she was not allowed to go back to middle school because the principal decided that she was a bad influence for the rest of the people. Her family had spent the little money they had trying to find her and her cousin and didn't have enough money to eat. That is when they received a phone call the day that Luna turned 15 years old. And this phone call changed her life. The phone call came from Rosio Orozco and she had heard Luna's story from a news reporter and contacted them. She aided Luna and her family by taking Luna in, in one of her shelters, which was the beginning of a very long healing process in Mexico, which is a country with 32 states. Only eight of them have shelters for human trafficking victims who have survived. Luna spent months among other victims like herself and continued to tune into her strength and resilience to live yet another day. After hearing her story in several therapy sessions, I honestly, I lost my ability to have a restful night's sleep. I was angry, I was terribly sad and filled with impotence. So I decided to tell her story with her permission, of course, with the hope that if we can actually connect to the victims from a place of empathy and humanity, we can make a change. A change within ourselves, a change in our homes, and hopefully a change in the grander scale of things. This book, which tells her story, um, is a wonderful project. It's not only her story because 100% of the royalties are destined to these amazing shelters for the victims here in Mexico. The royalties are for this cause. And it has been a very interesting journey, to say the least. People who have read Luna's story have understood that this is a group effort that we have to help in any way which we find possible within ourselves and in our everyday life to create consciousness on this matter. Others have bought the book, but refused to read it. Too painful and scary, they say, and I understand, although I truly don't. You see, with every situation we are currently living, turning a blind eye doesn't mean things will stop happening. It just means that we don't want to really know what's going on because that makes us feel vulnerable. The thing is, whether we feel vulnerable or not, we are all vulnerable. 
And it's precisely by accepting and embracing this vulnerability that we can be courageous, a courage we need for ourselves and for others, for our families and for the strangers around us. Because at the end of the day, what we choose not to see is as important as what we do. Luna is just one woman. She is just one story. But I believe that this is a story that can shift our perspective. And if we can understand that every single human life is precious and valuable, and that we connect to what is happening from another point of view, a humanitarian one, then in my opinion, we can accomplish very much more. Thank you. Thank you so much, Raquel, for uh, sharing this story and, and for writing the, the, the book, uh, a very powerful story that uh, really uh, leaves us with these uh, emotions and with these sensations that uh, we need to do uh, more uh, in order to, to prevent and to combat uh, human trafficking. Thank you so much. Now we're going to pass to uh, the second uh, part of this uh, panel that is going to be uh, a conversation uh, between uh, Livia Wagner and uh, Mayra Hernandez. Uh, they are two experts that work in human trafficking from uh, different uh, fields. So uh, first of all, I would like to introduce uh, Livia Wagner. Uh, Livia's work uh, covers main, uh, mainly the issues of human trafficking for labor and sexual exploitation, specializing on responsible supply chain management. Uh, she has done extensive research on natural resources trafficking, such as illegal gold mining, illegal logging, and related organized crime forms with a special focus on Latin America. She also coordinates the Responsible and Ethical Business Coalition Against Trafficking Initiative and coordinating uh, the Global Initiative's uh, uh, research lead for the Tech Against Trafficking Initiative. She holds a master's degree in development, sociology, and international relations from the University of Linz in Austria. And uh, she's based in Vienna. So welcome, Lydia, and uh, we're going to start uh, with you with uh, one question. So can you tell us, please, how do you see the organized crime element in human trafficking, especially uh, criminal infiltration, corruption, and complicity of governmental actors? So welcome, and, and please, the floor is yours. Muchas uh, gracias. Thank you very much, Mauricio and, and Raquel for sharing, uh, first of all, for putting this panel together. I think it's, it's really important to bring to a new angle to the human trafficking debates. Um, as, as Raquel was saying, this is one story and we're hearing the story of one young woman uh, and we're talking about numbers and I'm going to also give a brief overview of the human trafficking scope on a global level. But I think what, what we have to always understand and not forget is that every single person has a story like that. And the thing is we hear about statistics and we get numb to all the numbers and to the scope because we cannot understand how much the millions of, of victims are around the world and that we are so powerless to do something. But when we hear about a specific story, and this was also when we spoke in preparation for this, for this session, um, when we spoke about the story of Luna, I think this is so powerful because it gives you that um, it gives you that assertiveness that there is definitely something more than just a number. It's a human being. It's a it's a daughter. It's a sister. 
Um, and I think um, with this angle, the statistics look differently. So I would like to give you, um, because what we're trying to do here is to have this, um, this relationship between the individual and between the people and the group uh, of people being exploited uh, in human trafficking. And so here is a brief overview of um, human trafficking on a global scale. And these numbers are taken from the UNODC um, Global Human Trafficking Report, which comes out every two years. So the last one was in, in 2020 and the next one is coming out next year's. And based on these data, which is collected from official data from the member states um, to the UN. So um, it's very likely that these numbers are higher. Um, as you can see here, when we're looking at the percentage of cases by the pre-existing factors uh, that traffickers take advantage of, meaning how can these uh, victims or how can these individuals fall victim to human trafficking? And in most of the cases, it's economic need. So that means a person, even if the person is aware that it's a risky situation, but very often people have to take this risky situation um, because of their economical and precarious situation. Um, others are, or other situations are when children are coming from dysfunctional families. That means we're talking here about runaway kids, um, very often young uh, women, um, adolescents run away from home and they are very much at the risk of falling victim to any form of exploitation, amongst them also human trafficking. Um, another form of human trafficking is also like the intimate partner as a trafficker, the so-called lover boy, that means a woman is in a relationship with a partner that is, it's not, it's just a disguise as a, as a relationship, but basically this, this person is, um, is trafficking her for usually sexual exploitation. And then all the others, I, I don't think we have time to go through all of them, but here you can see a list of all the, the elements that make people vulnerable to human trafficking. And when looking at the statistics of um, detected forms uh, of human trafficking from 2018, the majority is of the individuals are trafficked for sexual exploitation, um, followed by forced labor, labor trafficking. And then the other forms are like um, forced recruitment for criminal activities, begging, forced marriage, mixed forms, uh, removal of organs and, and other unknown forms, or at least at the moment, emerging forms. Um, what I'm also going to speak later on is, um, is how these forms of exploitation can and very often overlap. So it's not just sexual exploitation and forced labor, very often, especially women and children, they are victims of a double form of victimization. Now, how does human trafficking, how is human trafficking possible? So now we have been looking at, at the individuals being exploited, but now looking at the groups, the criminal groups, um, exploiting people, the human traffickers, and how this business model uh, works. So very often, or there are like several types, and these are just, this is a non-exhaustive list of types um, of criminal groups exploiting people. 
um, is sometimes we have the individual trafficker so that it's one person, for instance, in the lover boy relationships or one person exploiting another one or trafficking another one for sexual exploitation. Um, the second one is like an opportunistic association of traffickers. That means it's a very small group. It's not so organized in terms of like an organized crime or criminal group. And, um, and in the second row, you see then more the, the organized crime element behind this, where you see a business enterprise type of, of groups um, that exploit people. And very often, and the second one is a governance type of organized crime group. So when there is already the, the, the control over an entire community, over a region. Um, and the, the below two groups here, they only can operate with, um, when we look at the supply chain of exploitation, um, this can only work with the complicity of people that are outside of this um, business group. So I'm talking here about corruption, I'm talking about bribes, for instance, of, uh, of governmental actors, as we have heard in the story of, of Luna, uh, governmental officials like police, uh, other law enforcement officers. Um, in some cases, we don't know exactly the percentage, but in many cases, this is necessary so that group and that type of business is possible, that there is an impunity, that there is no prosecution, and that there is also no protection for the victims. I think this is also something that we have to think about when we're talking about this ecosystem of human trafficking, that it's more than just the exploiter and the victim or the survivor. It's an ecosystem that allows the exploitation of people. And again, here we have different people when we're talking, for instance, about labor exploitation, even if it's in the informal sector, but we're talking about labor exploitation in one example, agricultural sector, for instance, there we even have the complicity of private sector actors. We have the complicity of supply chain um, elements that are, for instance, um, the suppliers of uh, machines, the suppliers of any services, uh, transportation, accommodation, um, all of them have to be complicit to make this work. Otherwise, it would not work. Um, so I think this is something that is very important to keep in mind in terms of um, how to look at this ecosystem and how to address it. Thank you, Olivia. Uh, really interesting what you just uh, mentioned. And we're going to uh, follow up uh, later on and also with uh, Mayra, who now I would like to, to introduce. So um, Mayra, um, she, she has, uh, she's the president and founder of uh, Back Home, an organization uh, in, in Mexico uh, for prevention of human trafficking. She is also an activist against uh, human trafficking and a counselor of uh, the Citizen Security Council in uh, of Jalisco in Mexico and counselor of the uh, citizen uh, searching of missing persons uh, council in Jalisco as well. So uh, welcome uh, Mayra and uh, our uh, the, the first question for you uh, will be as a follow up to what just uh, Livia mentioned about organized crime. Uh, what do you think it has been the impact of the pandemic in, in organized crime at the local level? Uh, related to human trafficking. Thank you. Thank you very much for, for the introduction. Talking about 
pandemic and all that happened with also vulnerability of of the of the persons is that well covid-19 has affected countries and and people globally but also i think this pandemic in every part of the world created larger pools of vulnerable persons why is this because people started recruiting for many types of 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 human human trafficking they started recruiting for labor exploitation for sexual exploitation they they went also for some sectors as women children migrants and what happened here is that as we know human trafficking is so complex that traffickers are intelligent and they also start like um creating this new networks to change their business model when they saw that for example in in the world many kids had in their hands a a cell phone that they were locked up at home that they were using internet all day long due to the closure of schools human trafficking also started to increase why because they started to change their operations and they started to also analyze the vulnerability of many people when they when the pandemic came to to our world uh, they also started to change some types of exploitation for example the 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 recruiting in in organized crime was one of the one of the most um types that that were increasing during the pandemic for example the production farms and more here in in jalisco as as we know organized crime is inside the 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 city inside many many places here in jalisco and in mexico but they knew how to get for example kids they knew how to go to communities where kids weren't going to school and they sold also this dream about having money about changing their lives about having cars about having women and also i think that this is many many times because of the the image that organized crime has giving to has gift to society that they are rich people that they are powerful people and the vulnerable kids that don't know that this is one of the most horrifying things that can happen in this world are believing in this people so i think that uh that is why we had an increase because of the 
of all the recruitment online. And because they knew how to move from, from physical to, to a own online world. Thank you, Mayra. Uh, yes, it's a, it's a good point about the overlapping of uh, digital and, and offline uh, crimes. So now, Livia, I would like to, to ask you if you can tell us about uh, another uh, overlap uh, So um, between uh, the different forms of uh, human trafficking and other forms of exploitation, so domestic servitude, uh, migrant workers, uh, among others. Please, Livia. Sure. Um, yeah, as I think what is what is important and and uh, definitely um, I would like to build up also on what um, Raquel and, and Mayra were saying is that human trafficking is not the simple form somebody is being exploited and then you just have to to address the trafficker and then the par the problem is solved. Um, because the reality is much more complex, the form of exploitation is much more complex. And then we come to the situation that uh, we have, as, as you were saying, Mauricio, we have the, the overlaps of the different forms of exploitation. So it can start as one form of exploitation, but then it goes to another, um, or at the same time, uh, women are being, or children or men are being exploited for two different uh, forms of exploitation. I'm going to um, just share here again another, um, just a graph showing that um, it is known to, to, I guess, to most of you that, and this is again also a non-exhaustive list uh, of forms of exploitation, but mainly we have, when we talk about um, the exploitation, we always talk about sexual exploitation and labor exploitation. But in this session, we're focusing in the first place in sexual exploitation. And then we realize um, from, from reports and from, from our research that sexual exploitation very often is in the center of many forms of exploitation. As, as I was saying, for instance, domestic servitude, um, especially in, in countries, in developing countries, um, the concept of having a person living in your in your house, um, a domestic servant, um, has become very often not just a form of labor exploitation because of forced uh, overtime, because of um, withhold uh, withholding wages, um, confiscation of ID when there is something like that. Um, no restriction of movement. So I'm talking now about the indicators. Um, that in reality, this is something that everybody can relate to who knows about the concept about um, domestic servitude. But here again, we have also the concept of, um, especially in Latin America, where for instance, I've been doing some research on labor exploitation and domestic servitude, how these agencies, for instance, that they are um, providing the services to households uh, for providing domestic servants, or for connecting you with domestic servants, they basically, when looking at their activity, how they are acting on the ground, um, this may fall under the definition of trafficking for labor exploitation. And, um, and this is very difficult to identify, again, because we're talking here about informal um, labor, we are talking here about closed environments, so no labor inspector is allowed to 
to go to some private homes. Uh, and basically these, uh, the, these women, mainly women and, and adolescents are secluded. And when talking about labor exploitation here, for instance, about um, migrant workers in, in different in agricultural work or in fishing, in the fishing context, um, in the mining context, in, in legal, uh, in, in uh, logging context. Very often, this is also um, colluded, I would say, with um, illegal um, activities. So we're talking, for instance, about illegal gold mining. We're talking about illegal, um, illegal logging, where labor exploitation is happening and the victimization is double because you have here these people, they are secluded, they are, um, uh, they are not, they know that they're doing an illicit activity. So that means nobody's going to ever seek for some support or to report it or something like that. And this makes them even more vulnerable. We're also talking about labor exploitation in some areas where it's combined with sexual exploitation. And <clears throat> sorry, we also know that for instance, cases of children that they're forced, they're recruited for forced begging at the same time, they are also um, victimized and, and sexually exploited. So we know about reports from children here in Europe, um, especially from, from Roma community, for instance, that they are, there are some quotas that they have to fulfill uh, on a daily basis when they don't fulfill these daily quotas uh, for begging. Um, then they are being sexually exploited on the weekends um, or in the evenings to fulfill these quota. Um, so the, the examples are endless. And because the majority of, of victims are women, are uh, female adolescents, there is again this another layer of the sexual um, exploitation and, and an increased vulnerability of, um, of these individuals. When we're talking about forced recruitment for criminal activity, this is usually for um, young men, as Maida was saying, in um, organized crime context where you have, for instance, um, criminal groups or cartels um, looking or having the control and the power over communities, then there is sometimes a forced recruitment, but sometimes they don't even have to uh, forcibly recruit um, adolescents. But sometimes in the case where there is forced recruitment, also um, sexual exploitation and, um, and uh, sexual abuse is also being used um, as a punishment to make them uh, more vulnerable and to make them uh, more um, obedient in that cases. Um, so here, what I just wanted to highlight is that very often what we have heard about Luna is, is one story that has uh, different layers of exploitation, which makes it looking at the prosecution and looking at, um, at looking how law enforcement is being able to look at these, uh, at these cases makes it even more difficult because we're talking about labor exploitation, then from a law enforcement side, then you have labor inspectors who look at that. When we have sexual exploitation, um, then we usually have um, attorneys that are looking at human trafficking for sexual exploitation. And very often in reality, these groups of judicial um, staff do not communicate or not enough communicate 
to see what are the overlaps between these. They just see it from one angle, for instance, labor exploitation, sexual exploitation. Um, and this is another challenge in, in how to address this in real life and how to, to protect victims or how to, to rescue um, victims of human trafficking. Thank you, Olivia. This definitely uh, resonates with uh, Luna's story about the overlapping of human trafficking and also uh, uh, drugs uh, and, and cocaine and, and Ra what Raquel was telling us about that they were sold uh, for drugs. So it's it's really important that uh, agencies communicate uh, between each other. So uh, thank you so much. And now, Mayra, I would like to, to pass uh, with you. And um, I would like to ask you, uh, what do you think are the main challenges that you face uh, assisting victims as Luna in, in your daily work in, in Jalisco? Well, I think that first, uh, human trafficking has many shadows. The greatest challenge is indifference of society, because many people think that this doesn't happen, that this isn't something that maybe one day we could be victims of human trafficking. And the other one is also the that human trafficking in Jalisco, also in many states of Mexico, is invisible. The name Human trafficking is something that many times nobody wants to mention it. For example, in, in, many, in many places where we go with government, we talk about violence, we talk about crime, uh, organized crime, we talk about disappearance, but nobody talks about human trafficking. And nobody talks about how human trafficking is overlapping disappearance that many times for example disappearance has to has to be with with human trafficking nobody is uh doing this this analysis that exists in jalisco and this is also because people are afraid of making reports and people are afraid to talk so when when this word doesn't appear in the news doesn't appear in the schools when there is no prevention against this this problem it it starts to to increase so the greatest challenge that we are having is placing it in these meetings placing it with with the governor place it in, 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 the, in Mexico. So we can talk about it, not only with people that are involved in fighting against human trafficking, but also talking it with all society. And I think that is the greatest hope about this book, because this book is for everyone and everyone can can read it it's not only for human rights defenders or it's not only for activists it's for everyone because everyone has to know about what is happening in our country and in jalisco more <laughs> so i think it is it is that and also the 
the great overlapping that that is happening here in Jalisco with this appearance because uh, Jalisco is number one uh, state in Mexico on disappearances. And also we have approximately 17 cartels of organized crime. So I think all this is related. Thank you, Mayra. That's a, a great way to make a, a bridge to, to talk about the book. And now, Livia, I would like to ask you about the concept of uh, dehumanization in human trafficking uh, statistics and why the book is important. Yeah, as, as I was saying at the beginning, I think everybody who is working in human trafficking um, for many years gets numb to the numbers, as I was saying before, because it's just too much to process. You cannot understand um, how much it is and um, and less for, for people who are not working in the area of, of anti-human trafficking. So I think it's absolutely understandable that this is so difficult to comprehend what the concept of human trafficking is, how this is possible, what led to the situation, because there are so many people saying like, this would never happen to me. Um, I would never be in that situation. And I think it's it's really um, because these are numbers. It's numbers about people in, in Africa. It's numbers about people in Asia or in Latin America. But on a global level, um, it's something that happens to others. And I think what is really important um, is to understand. And I think a book like, like Raquel was, was now working on is, is one vehicle to make it a story that is not just a fiction, um, which is then even more powerful because you realize like this young lady, she is now as I'm reading it. And when I was reading it, I was like, what is she doing now? Where is she? How is she now? How, how has she overcome this? And, and It, it was really even for me that I've been now working in that area for so many years and I've I've read so many stories, you know, but this this book is still so impactful because it shows you that a very normal life gets upside down from one second to the other. And I think that is what is important to to convey this message that everybody um, can be in a situation that is is risky. It doesn't mean that everybody is now can be a victim of human trafficking in, in terms of you go out and it happens to you. But I think it's it's just being the risk and being a vulnerable person. And everybody of us is vulnerable at some point. Um, it's not a whole life. And I think that's really important to understand that um, what this book can bring you closer to. And as Maida was saying, like, In, in Mexico, communities have to understand. And I think even more in the situation that very often people, especially young people, they hear about the rumors, what can happen to you, what might happen to you. And like the cousin tells you about a friend and things like that, but it won't happen to you. Or you just take the risk because you just want to try it out to go somewhere else, to have a good job or, or whatever it is. And, and I think here, prevention and awareness raising is crucial. This is, especially on community level, it's crucial. Um, this is the first step. As a second step, 
what comes after that, you know, because the awareness raising, I've been talking to people that they were saying, they were telling me, um, young adolescent women, they were saying, I knew I could perhaps be in a dangerous situation, but I had to take the risk because I had no other opportunity back home. So we have to also think the step further, what comes after the awareness raising. So a book like that, powerful stories are necessary, are important, but this is a vehicle for the next step. And I think that is something that, that we have to think in the anti-human trafficking community. What do we do with these vulnerable um, communities? What do we do with entire migrant uh, worker communities that they have to leave their home countries, their communities, their regions, because they have no other opportunities. And that brings us back to a more, um, to a bigger concept of, of work um, and, uh, and how in a globalized work, uh, what is work, what is, what is the, what is worth your labor and what is the price, what costs a product, what costs your clothes, your coffee, your name it, whatever it is. So I think that it comes, everything comes together. Thank you, Olivia. And probably that uh, next step that you were talking about, uh, the book is, a, is the vehicle for a next uh, step, could be citizen participation in, in the design the implementation and the evaluation of public policies against human trafficking. So uh, now, Mayra, can you tell us about this and how do you feel that the book can have impact in this next step, please? I think this, this next step is a, a big challenge for, for us as country, because as Raquel said uh, at the beginning, here in Mexico, we only have eight shelters. We need 32. So this was uh, the first step for, for changing this reality because this is urgent. What's happening right now when, when, uh, when a girl, for example, here in Jalisco that we don't have a shelter uh, is rescued, they take her to a to another place or to a shelter of violented women. And we know that these are two, two different points that we cannot mix them. Another reality is that these shelters are full. There's no space. So we have to start to find a place in the other eight shelters that are in Mexico. So imagine a 16-year-old girl that in this moment, when we are talking here, is still without a shelter. So that's the reality that we are living as a country and as, a, as Jalisco. And this little step, I think it's um, a beginning of a big step because creating these this shelters is uh, by buying this book will be a great change. Many people after reading this book, it's, it has been really beautiful for us because we have like two points. There are people 
people that don't want to read the book because they know that by reading maybe they will change their life as Raquel and I have had are right now here because when we know about human trafficking you have only two two choices or you do something or you close your eyes and keep on going so many people have told us that they haven't read the book because of that reason because they're not prepared to take action and they want to take action but they buy it and they have it there in their desktop and the other the other type of of readers have been people that know about the labor that we have been doing and they were like oh uh, your labor is so beautiful uh congratulations but after reading the book we received calls that they wanted to change that they wanted to do something no matter what no matter if they knew or they didn't know about human trafficking for example if they are lawyers they have called us and told us if you need some help about about laws here we are other organizations that don't have to be with don't have to do with human trafficking also whatever you need here it is thank you so the first question that uh, we have would be from uh, vanessa so uh, and it's for raquel uh, you mentioned that uh, mexico has uh, 32 states but only eight have shelters or some sort of uh, haven for survivors is this because of fund lack of funding uh, uh, lack of funding lack of government interest in acknowledging the issue or is it something else uh, why do you believe is is that raquel Well, Vanessa, thank you for your question. It's an excellent question because the answer is very complex. And the reality is that it's all of the above. There is um, lack of interest. There is lack of funds. And the situation also, for example, for example, when um, because I'm I'm currently in therapy with a young woman that is in Jalisco. And when there is a legal complaint, um, it's changed it's not taken into account it's because of the way of managing the whole situation for it to seem like there is no human trafficking so if you can't name it if you can't put a pin on it then it's not there where when it's actually there all over but it's it it's it's very difficult because as as livia well mentioned everything is overlapped but as everything is also intertwined So it's very complicated to actually um, pinpoint what one thing is when it's all of it. So there are no funds and there is not very much interest from the government. Thank you, Raquel. Indeed, a very complex uh, answer to, to that one. So and now uh, we have another question. Oh, Livia, please. Yeah, I, I would like also to add something here, which I think is, is also very important from a gender perspective. Um, we're talking here about human trafficking officially, mainly um, impacting or addressing women. At least this is how it is seen, because self-identification of men is much lower in most of the countries. You don't have men saying, I'm a victim of human trafficking, I've been abused, I've been exploited, and so on. So in uh, when we're talking about the official numbers, uh, law enforcement, police stations, This is a women's issue. And I think it also says a lot that from governments, there is or there are not enough 
funds. It's not high enough on the political agenda, things that are related to gender-based violence. And this is also a part of gender-based violence, although it's not, but it's perceived as such. And this is also one reason. So I think it's, it's also really important to see human trafficking as something that it's not just a women's issue, because as I said, labor exploitation of migrant workers is 90% men in some context. Um, but it's also to see why does the government not pay um, enough attention to that? And I think here the gender aspect is crucial. Thank you, Livia, for uh, raising that issue as well. And uh, we have a follow-up uh, in relation to, to shelters. Um, are, um, they, they want to know if these uh, shelters are government-run. Uh, and uh, they ask because uh, they are thinking about NGOs and what resources they may or may not provide to, to this uh, population. These shelters are not government run. Um, yesterday, I had the opportunity, well, yes, Monday and Tuesday, I had the opportunity to go again to these shelters, the, the girls shelters and the boys shelters because they are separated. And um, it's, it's a very difficult issue primarily because they are NGOs and because as we very well know, um, I mean, there, there aren't enough resources. I mean, there are donations, there are people who, who in, constantly try to make a difference with, with their time, with, um, that's also part of the project of the book. No, it's, it's the resources, well, the, the royalties go towards these places to give them a bit more, but the, the reality is that no, they, they, they are not um, funded by the government, actually quite the opposite. Um, we have another uh, comment and question from uh, Paula Corso as a filmmaker. Uh, well, uh, she, she mentions that uh, we all know that uh, children suffer, but we don't want to see a children telling us about their suffering. So uh, how, can they, uh, how can we communicate all this issue? And also she's asking um, what happens to a person who was uh, exploited, who is waiting for him, her outside this, this world. Uh, I don't know if, uh, who wants to, to answer or maybe uh, mention, oh, Mayra, yes, please. And then maybe Raquel can mention something about Luna's uh, story afterwards. And we have uh, five more minutes, please, Mayra. I just wanna answer about the uh, filmmaker. I think that films about human trafficking specifically are movies that nobody wants to see, even me, because it's suffering, you cry. There's movies that, that I couldn't see because we don't want to suffer more. The other thing is that we as human beings, are, protect, are protecting us from knowing this reality. But what we can do is show this reality with hope because many of the movies of human trafficking are only the bad things. And you finish the movie and you're like, oh my God, and that's all. But they don't give you this, uh, this, uh, Ah, simple palabra. This options to do something. So I think that one is making these movies as a reality. 
not as changed people, like with chains, not with the with this thing tape in, in their mouths, because that is also a big um, mistake. Because when when authorities receive a victim of human trafficking, they are waiting to see this person with the tape in, in their mouth or with chains in their in their hands. And the reality yes. is that a victim can be me, can be Libya, can be Raquel, can be Mao. So I think that we have to turn this. And also, uh, I want to, to tell you that we want to, to do La Estrella de Luna, a movie. So if you want to, to cooperate okay. also, you're invited. Okay, mm -hmm. you, you can connect with uh, uh, Paula, that means she's a filmmaker. So, well, there are good, good ideas to, to connect. Um, thank you, thank you, Mayra. Uh, Raquel, would you like to, to add uh, something? Well, not really. I, I think we, we covered all of our angles. And well, thank you for the questions and the comments. I think it's amazing, um, as I read in one of the comments, to focus on the shelters and to focus on what comes next, because I do believe that um, all of us have the strength, have resilience. And if we can connect to that, right? Because with Luna, as, as we, we begin reading the story, we know she's still here. So that somehow makes it bearable, even though it's, it's, it's terrifying and sad, we know she's still here. So that gives us hope. So connecting with this might be a way to, to change the narrative and to get people involved in what we can do. So thank you. Thank you, Raquel. And now, uh, Livia, I would like to, to ask you, you can help us to, to answer this question uh, from uh, Faith Tundeyara um, uh, men that mentions, I would like to know if there's a reason behind low statistics of men as victims of human trafficking. Um, yeah, so as I was saying before, um, this has mainly to do, at least in, in the research until now, is that men um, less identify themselves or tend to less identify themselves as victims. Because in terms of, um, for instance, when it's about labor exploitation, um, men believe that this is the reason why they have migrated, for instance, and then there is no reason why they should complain. They just have to go through it. Um, that there is a form of exploitation, that this is a kind of abuse, abusive, um, Uh, recruitment or abusive um, labor circumstances. This is something that they believe that this is part of the job, unfortunately, and they have um, they have decided to leave their their family to to get to earn some money. So this is one of the main reasons that there is less identification of men. And um, what is being done now is that um, many international organizations, what they do is um, they try to train labor inspectors um, to go when they go to the facilities to have a specific view or like be trained on red flags and indicators mm -hmm. of even men saying, I'm not a victim, everything is fine. I just don't earn enough and I don't have a day off, but it's okay. Um, to then train these labor inspectors on what actually forced labor is or labor trafficking. Thank you, Olivia. This reminds me to a movie, Seven Prisoners, a Brazilian movie about 
men being exploited and human trafficking. So, well, thank you so much to everyone. We need to close this this panel. A special thanks to our panelists, to Livia, Raquel, Mayra, and of course, a special thanks to the JITOC team, to uh, Sara, Vanessa, Iris, and Sofia for all uh, her their hard work. And, and uh, also thanks to all the attendees and public and and hope to to see you soon and keep uh, continue this uh, uh, conference of uh, 24 hours of organized crime so thank you so much and see you soon thank you thank you for listening to the oc24 podcast for more talks have a look at the podcast feed on whichever platform you use there are loads more to listen to video versions of these talks are also available on the global initiative against transnational organized crime youtube channel if you would like to share these talks around we ask that you use the hashtag oc24 and let us know what you think the 24-hour conference on global organized crime is brought to you by the European Consortium of Political Research Standing Group on Organized Crime, the Center for Information and Research on Organized Crime, the International Association for the Study of Organized Crime, and the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. For more information, head over to oc24.globalinitiative.net. This has been the OC24 podcast from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. Thanks for listening.